Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi. So we do this every year. It's a yearly look at the horror genre. We do it because of this Halloween thing, this holiday you may have heard of. And we almost try to celebrate the anniversary of some movie. This year it's an American werewolf in London. We're going to talk also about movies like Get Out and Us and the new version of Candyman, ways in which black people who have been kind of excluded from the horror genre in meaningful ways are now included thanks to the work of black filmmakers themselves. And lastly, we'll talk about the way that horror because of the way that it's made and the way that it's thought out, horror sometimes escapes some of the blandification that goes on with things like Disney movies. So all of that is ahead. Stay tuned after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I love to take my baby to a movie show So I can try to smooch her while the lights are low But you and Curdle do a story of romance There's only one way I've got a chance It takes the Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein or Dracula To put her in the mood for love Hi, and welcome to our annual horror-themed Halloween show. We do it every year. I always forget that we do it every year. This year, we're going to spend some time in the middle of the show talking about the the whole question of race and horror. We're also going to talk about the anniversary of an American werewolf in London. But before we talk about that, we're going to talk about the fundamental ungovernability of horror. Joining us now is kind of a new friend. We've gotten to know her. She's part of the nose now. Raquel Benedict claims to be the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. She's the host of the Right, R-I-T-E, Good, G-U-D podcast. And she recently wrote for a publication called Blood Knife, which is kind of where we discovered her, How Horror Makes Itself Ungovernable. So welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me back. So maybe we should start in one of the earlier cradles of horror and go back to 1968. And George Romero makes a movie called Night of the Living Dead. Do you remember one time when we were small, we were out here? It was from right over there. I jumped out at you from behind the tree, and Grandpa got all excited, and he shook his fist at me, and he said, Boy, you be damned to hell! (laughs) 
Remember that? Right over there. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. And he makes it for, I think, $114,000. $114,000. And it grosses $12 million domestically, $18 million, I think, internationally. It makes back 250 times its budget. So I think one of the questions that you pose, and you use more recent examples of this, is obviously if you're a big entertainment conglomerate, which is in the, and you're in the process of sucking up any kind of content that you can find that is profitable, particularly a kind of content that can be made on the cheap and then you know, milked like a cow for all kinds of financial rewards and, and maybe you know, turned into other things and spinoffs and stuff, that's got to be very attractive to you. If you're Disney or any of the other big entertainment corporations, you got to be looking at that or some of the other success stories in the world of horror and, and licking your chops and saying, let's do it. You point out Hereditary was made for $10 million, box office $80 million. The Witch in 2015 was made for $4 million. Its box office was $40 million. I am that very witch when I sleep. My spirit slips away from my body and dances naked with the devil. That's how I signed his book. No. He bade me bring him an unbaptized babe. So I stole Sam and I gave him to my master. And I'll make any man or thing else vanish I like. No. Aye. And I'll vanish thee too if thou displeaseth me. And I think the point that you're making is... Horror is pretty good against inoculating itself against exploitation by companies like Disney. Right. I mean, first of all, as you said, there is simply the material reason why. Horror can be made on the cheap and your chances of profitability are really good. So that leaves the filmmaker a lot more room to take risks, to take creative risks. It's understandable that if a a company spends $100 million on a movie, they want a guaranteed return on that investment. So they're going to focus group it to death. They're going to take away anything transgressive, anything scary. Oh, can't have an interracial relationship, can't have... A downer ending can't have an anti-authoritarian message, but with horror, if you're putting it together super cheap and there's a good chance it'll make money because horror fans just want to see something scary, then you have a ton of freedom. And I think that's part of why there's such a renaissance for horror cinema, why so, so much of other movies are just dominated by these moldy old franchises like Star Wars is, what, 50 years old now? The Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Marvel comics is decades, decades old. The most recent fantasy franchise, I guess that would be Harry Potter, and that's at least 20 years old. But original stories, stories that aren't from pre-existing IP, you get those more and more in horror. Yeah. And so one of the things, one of the arguments you make is that people who are drawn to the horror genre... What they're looking for in particular is a certain kind of adrenaline rush. They want an adrenaline rush that can only be provided by a genuine experience of fear. And that in a lot of ways, the smaller, more independent creator is more able to do that than the big conglomerate. Right. Well, the purpose of horror is to scare us and make us feel uncomfortable. And 
imagine Disney trying to do that. Disney's entire thing, Disney's entire brand is making you feel comfortable, is making you feel good. It's just completely at odds with the mission of horror. And, and while I think there can be such a thing as sort of safe horror, maybe for kids, I think most horror fans, most horror people really want to be made uncomfortable, want to be surprised and want to see something transgressive. And that's why horror cinema gives us this space to transgress and also to deal with really subversive social issues like uh, Night of the Living Dead. It, this was a movie made in the 1960s where the hero is a black man and on screen he slaps a white woman across the face and shoots a middle-aged suburban white dude. Don't you know what's going on out there? This is no Sunday school picnic. Don't you understand? My brother is alone. Your brother is dead. No! My brother is not dead! Like, where could you get away with that in any other genre in the 1960s? I don't think you could get away with that now. It's a great and point. Yeah. And so much of horror cinema also deals with queer issues, has much more open representation of queerness. There have been queer characters, queer themes in horror movies. I mean, we had bisexuality in The Hunger back in the 80s. Any vampire movie always has some really strong queer undertones. Or, or even it might just be plain old explicit. Sexuality has always been openly dealt with desire, forbidden desire in horror in ways that really weren't allowed in, in other genres. It's still not allowed. I mean, my, my big essay that got really popular, Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny, was about how in the MCU, it's this completely sexless universe. But in horror, there's always sexuality. Right. That's the Marvel Cinematic Universe for those of you who are untutored. So, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that's happening, and you're, you're already kind of saying it, but let's say it even more firmly, is that certain auteurs have decided really the only way to talk successfully about reality is to make horror movies about it. I mean, Jordan Peele, I think, is the obvious example of that with Get Out and Us. He's basically making social commentary <laughs> saying, really, the best way I can tell you a story about actual reality is to make a supernaturally themed horror movie because that's the reality you're living in. I mean, some horror movies are for chills and thrills and they are the kind of visceral, you know, cinematic equivalent of a really scary Six Flags ride. But there's also right. like a whole bunch of people who are doing, uh, you know, a pretty different thing, right? Right, right. And even kind of mainstream horror movies that on the surface might just look like, oh, these are thrill rides, often have a really subversive streak. One of my favorite examples is the whole haunted house genre, especially poltergeist. Steven Spielberg is not a subversive filmmaker. He's not a radical. But this movie, this kind of mainstream horror movie about, about a family, I mean, underneath it, this premise is that, hey, your level of suburban affluence and comfort and American wealth is literally built on a foundation of blood and cruelty. How much room for pool is there? We own all the land. We've already made arrangements for relocating the cemetery. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, come on. I mean, that's sacrilegious, isn't it? Oh, don't worry about it. After all, it's not ancient tribal burial ground. It's just people. Besides, we've done it before. In 76, right down there.
Like, what a, what an amazing radical thing to say. And this is Spielberg. Spielberg's yeah. not known for being radical, but to tell an audience, look, you built your house on something just irredeemably wicked and you can't save this. In the end, they have to run away from it. They can't fix the house. They can't just call an exterminator. You you just have to leave it behind. It's unsolvable. Like, that is really radical. Yeah, I think also, I think Poltergeist and Amityville Horror were made kind of at a time when thinking about homes was transitioning from home to where we are now, where houses are often looked at as investments. So the idea that where you live is maybe not something that you care about, but that you might be planning to flip or somehow or other leverage, you know, in other ways, you've lost track of some basic human value, and it's going to come back to bite you in the butt. And so here's here's how that happens in this particular movie. I'd like you to comment also just a little bit about the fact that no matter what, you do. These films, because they often, you know, have repetitive tropes. I mean, sometimes they're just brilliantly original. And we've mentioned some brilliantly original ones right now. But there are repetitive tropes, and that invites commodification. So that not only do these movies struggle to be successfully scary, they they struggle against being appropriated, not just by Disney or Hulu or Netflix or, or whoever. They struggle against being appropriated by Geico. Let's hide in the attic. No, in the basement. Why can't we just get in the running car? Are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. Smart. <laughs> yeah, okay. If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. That's what you do. Shh, I'm being quiet. Breathing on me. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do. I mean, you could make the argument, okay, horror died when that commercial got made. It's kind of like, all right, if they can do that, if they can exploit it that way. And I mean, it's kind of a funny commercial, too, when you watch it. I don't know. It feels like that's one of the other ways in which the essence of horror is jeopardized. I mean, a subgenre absolutely can get stale. 80s slasher movies kind of died for a reason because they all kind of became the same. And I still like 80s slasher movies, but... Yeah, after a while, they kind of became all copies of each other, and you could just telegraph from the beginning, oh, there's the final girl, the good girl who's virginal and she'll survive. There's the promiscuous girl who will probably die while having sex, et cetera, et cetera. But something I'll point out is that people don't really make slashers anymore. Mm -hmm. When the genre got stale, audiences moved on and filmmakers moved on to make something else. Right. And and I think also, I mean, first of all, I don't, I've never really watched slasher movies. And I'm actually not a person who's looking for more fear than I experience on a typical day. But, you know, I mean, I'm curious. And so I've watched some of these movies and, I, you know, A Quiet Place was pretty easy for me. I didn't find that all that difficult to get through. And it was beautiful to look at, too, which I really genuinely appreciated. But one of the points that you make is that, you know, one thing that the the small budget, very original, creative, genre-busting horror movie person has to give up on, that the big companies can never give up on, is ultimately, and and, uh, obviously there are exceptions. The commercial we just heard proves that there are exceptions, and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street prove that there are exceptions. But basically what Disney's looking for right now is something that it can spin off into 18 different movies. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has like 33 movies, which if you don't, you know, if you skip Ant-Man 2, you are going to be missing a (laughs) critical piece of information that 
that will cause certain scenes to be incomprehensible to you. So, I mean, and it's harder to do that if you're making vividly original horror, I assume. I mean, you mentioned The Wicker Man. I understand you're looking for a missing girl. I found her. Splendid. In her grave. Your lordship is a justice of the peace. I need your permission to exhume her body, have it transported to the mainland for a pathologist's report. You suspect uh, foul play? I suspect murder. And conspiracy to murder. In that case, you must go ahead. Your lordship seems strangely unconcerned. I'm confident your suspicions are wrong, Sergeant. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. I'm just trying to imagine what if Disney bought the rights to the Wicker Man and tried to do to it what they did to Star Wars or the various other properties they own. So let's imagine Disney makes Wicker Man to return to Summer Isle. Well, first of all, the original is all about sexuality and Disney can't do that. So that's got to be out that all that has got to be out which was like half of the movie secondly it's all about this clash of cultures and religions and disney isn't really going to deal with that directly either because there's just too much risk of offending somebody or getting banned in a conservative part of the world so you've got to cut that out what's left i don't even have a movie anymore because that's like 90 percent of the movie i guess a guy goes to an island and a I, I don't even know what you'd make the movie about. Right. And and what they yeah, what they want, as you say, is they want Wicker Man 2, Return to Summer Isle, Wicker Man 3. And I mean, my feeling is, you know, if I wanted every year to see a postman dragged off into some cornfields and placed in some kind of huge wicker frame and burned to death as part of some complex pagan fertility rite, I would move to Harwinton, Connecticut, where that does happen every year. But um, <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I mean, the thing that makes the original Edward Woodward 1970 version terrific is you've never seen anything quite like that. And so the minute you indulge that impulse to, to spin off, you're taking away the thing that's maybe the best thing about it. Right. And although obviously the movie has influenced other films like Midsommar owes a massive debt to it, it's not just a sequel. You've got to do a different spin on it. You've got to take it from a different angle. You can't just repurpose it because, well, if the audience knows what's coming, if if the audience has seen it before, it just kind of stops being scary. And while, yeah, there are audiences for slasher sequels that are kind of stale and follow the formula, there are people who love Jason and, and Michael Myers as just be, just for the familiarity. That's not what really gets people that excited. So in, in a way, the news is mostly good news, you know, that if you're a potential horror auteur and you can somehow or other raise a million bucks or so on, on your parents' credit cards or whatever, however you're going to do it and make the next It Follows. It Follows was made for a million dollars and grossed, mm-hmm. let's see, $23 million. <laughs> There's not that much standing in your way. And, and it's unlikely that you're going to be interfered with by some big studio that you would have had to placate if you were playing a different kind of game right now. I mean, it's good news, right? This is a genre that you love and care about, and it's not going to be drained of its vitality. Yeah, I sure hope not. I, uh, there is a fear, at least in horror fiction, I am seeing a boom in horror fiction, which is a mixed bag. On the one hand, it, it, it's good for people like me who write horror, but on the other hand, you, you see people who are just kind of looking for a quick buck moving into sort of gentrify the neighborhood. But I'm going to keep optimistic because 
Well, in horror, we know what happens to people who move into suspiciously cheap homes to try to gentrify the neighborhood. <laughs> there you go. A beautiful ending for a very interesting <laughs> piece. The piece is by, well, actually, you should look for the byline, R.S. Benedict. Raquel Benedict wrote that piece for Blood Knife, November 2020 issue. Thanks for talking about that to us today. Thanks so much for having me back. All right. And we'll be back. Hi, this is Colin. We're going to talk about the the whole question of race and horror. Here to do that with us is David Jesu Darson, a freelance writer and journalist. He wrote about horror's dubious reckoning with racism for BBC culture. So actually, let's, let's sort of start in the present. We can work our way backwards. So of late, Jordan Peele, of course, as an auteur, has kind of entered this fray with Get Out and Us. And then Candyman is this year's best example of a new context for black representation in horror movies and TV. What's Candyman? For me, Candyman was a guy named Sherman Fields. He had a hook for a hand. Neighborhood character used to stand out there and hand out sweets to us when I was a kid. One October, a razor blade shows up in a little white girl's Halloween candy. Police come around here looking for Sherman. Killed him right there on the spot. What shows up a couple weeks later? More razor blades and more candy. That's when we knew Sherman had been innocent, harmless. But that wasn't the last we saw of him. So, first of all, what's going on here? In other words, uh, is it simply that black auteurs have acquired enough power and heft to begin to make movies that probably should have been being made for a long time? Well, I, I definitely think that that is the case, that there's a sort of a clamor for these kind of pieces of work, pieces of art. And I think Get Out showed that there was an audience there, that you can make a film that subverts all the genres, cliches, and make a really good film. And there's a huge audience out there for it. And that kind of upended everything. I think that to be, if I was being slightly cynical, I'd say that Hollywood then sort of leapt on that bandwagon and wanted to reproduce that without any of the nuances. So you've got a lot of sort of copycat horrors, sort of his house, bad hair, Ma particularly, it's sort of endless. Right. One of Peel's fundamental arguments, I think, is you want horror. Being black in America is horror. We, we can now begin to sort of dress that up with a really interesting plot, with some special effects, with uh, some conceit that drives each of these two movies. But it seems to me the fundamental thing that he's saying is this is already a horror show if you're living it. I know what you're thinking. What? Come on, I get it. White family, black servants, it's a total cliche. I wasn't going to take you there. Well, you didn't have to, believe me. <laughs> no, uh, we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I just, I, I, I couldn't bear to let them go. I mean, boy, I hate the way it looks. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, by the way, I, I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I could. Best president in my lifetime, hands down. I agree. Yeah. I think that, like, black people, when they watch horror, watch it in a different way to other people. So I think anyone who's encountered racism, like myself, um, so I'm a, a British Asian, I'm brown, you know, watching horror films is quite is uh, is quite both quite difficult on the one hand but also quite cathartic and it's it's no surprise that Jordan Peele has a sort of comedy background I think because it's that idea of like the 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 elephant in the room getting the laugh out you know that the awkward laugh and I think it's it's really kind of clever what he does and that's the key point here is that some of the other horror films aren't as clever as what he's done so on the one hand you've got see this is quite interesting because i'm like 43 years old mm. and when i was growing up there really wasn't representation of people of color on 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 films and on television so when you did have some representation like Candyman, you, it came like a, such a big deal to see that that film and i think that's very different to someone who's like in their teens or 21 now because they're used to that representation so i think they're asking a bit more from say say if, if you showed the original candy man now then they'll be like this is deeply problematic this isn't very good representation at all whereas when it when when i was 18 19 i really wanted to see that film i remember looking at it in the video shop so much and then when i when i when i got it it became such a big thing and then when you you view it in hindsight, yeah, it's not the, such great representation. But at the time, it was quite a huge thing. Right. Well, I mean, it begins with a white protagonist. So right away, we've got some question about how much representation there's going to be. Virginia Madsen plays a college graduate student in semiotics, of all things. Yeah, it's a white person's story. And then it's no surprise this is made by a white director, white writer. The scare is a white woman who's blonde being preyed upon by a black person. But it's then, it's like, who is Candyman created for? Is it created for a white audience? Is it created for a black audience? It's very, and I do think that Candyman, Jordan Peele's, is fundamentally created for a black audience. And, and it's a joyous occasion for because of that. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think going into that and, and as part of the prior phenomenon, you know, there is that no notion of the so-called magical Negro probably embodied best in film or at least in horror film by the Scatman Crothers character in The Shining. In The Shining. Yeah. Mr. Halloran, are you scared of this place? No. Scared nothing here. It's just that, you know, some places are like people. Some shine and some don't. I guess you could say the Overlook Hotel here has something about it that's like shining. The interesting thing about that is that Kubrick made him the sacrificial Negro because in the book he survives. And part of one of the horrible things that we have to put up with with horror in the past is that the idea of a sacrificial Negro is that the black person would die first. Well, often what's happened is that kind of like racial bias is that horror has cliches and people just have filmmakers just take that cliche because they can get an easy scare. And so you you have you use that because, you know, it's going to come because, you know, the black guy's going to die first. So the, the director takes that. 
Right. So for people who don't know about the, the modern Candyman, I mean, some of this may be just virgin territory in, in the case of the 1992 one and the new one. But talk a little bit more about the new one and explain why it's satisfying in a way that certain other things haven't been. I, I always think like a good horror film sets up the premise very well. And that's before the horror starts. Mm-hmm. And so you um, really feel for the characters. And a bad horror film is where you really want them to just be killed off. Whereas with the new Candyman, you really kind of empathise with their situation. It it sort of delves into gentrification and how like black art is used and white gatekeeping. That's a big thing as a journalist, person of colour, journalist like me. All the people that I pitch stories to are white guys. So for me to see that, it felt really, 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 really raw, realistic. I'm trying to align these moments in time that exist in the same place. The idea is to almost calibrate tragedy into a focused lineage that culminates in the now. Anyway, I don't know why I'm standing next to my own piece like some kind of the word speaks for itself. No, it, it speaks, all right. It speaks in didactic knee-jerk cliches about the ambient violence of the gentrification cycle. But your kind are the real pioneers of that cycle, you know? Excuse me? Artists. Artists descend upon disenfranchised neighborhoods, divining cheap rent so that they can dick around in their studios without the crushing burden of a day job. And then it just takes all the things that you kind of expect to happen and turn them on their heads. And like the things of the black people dying. No, it's white people dying and dying first. And then what they did really well is that the, the racial violence in it, and this is how all the other the copycats horrors have fallen down as they show they're very gratuitous on the racist violence and what Candyman, the jordan peele one does very well is it does it using sort of hand puppets uh, shadow puppets to show the sort of Candyman myth about the lynching and that kind of thing and that made that m- makes it very subtle but also very powerful you know the gentrification thing is interesting too because just to circle back to what we said right at the outset and, and this is something that Stephen King has said many times too that most horror attaches itself somehow to a contemporary anxiety that you know most horror although it may live in the supernatural and it may be much more gruesome and frightening than regular life is it has some connection to something that somebody is worrying about in real life Life right at the moment. And not for the first time, I guess, in Candyman, it's real estate, right? Yeah, I think that this idea, it's not an idea, it happens, it's this notion of that you're kind of getting erased from your own neighborhood. No, I get it. It's the hood, gentrification, etc. Artists gentrify the hood. Who do you think makes the hood? The city cuts off a community and waits for it to die. Then they invite developers in and say, hey, you artists, you young people, you white, preferably, or only, please come to the hood, it's cheap. And if you stick it out for a couple of years, we'll bring you a Whole Foods. But also, I think that it touches very well onto the fears of police brutality. And it does that both in the past and the present very deftly. I think it is very much like the sort of Black Lives Matter horror film 
So the question, I guess, is going forward. I mean, we've got Jordan Peele, and so he directs Get Out, and he directs us, and he produces Candyman. We should say that Candyman was directed by a, a woman director who has— Nia DaCosta. Uh, yeah, and who has— you know, set all kinds of interesting new commercial benchmarks in terms of what she's been able to do in terms of bringing a, a, a movie right up to the top of the box office grosses and stuff like that. But I guess the question is, can filmmakers continue to steer in this direction? I mean, as you say, the studios and the money people are going to look at how much money these things make, and it, it will either impel them to give more money to creative and responsible auteurs like these two, or as you suggested at the outset, just to make knockoffs, right? I mean, and that would be unfortunate, I assume, to have low quality stuff that just attempts to capitalize on the success of movies like these. I think I really want to invert your question and sort of look at it more from the studio perspective and say that the the problem really is the studios. The people who are commissioning this are white people and they need to look at that and they need to not just copy what's going on they need to have people who are involved in, in the situation. That's where Jordan Peele's really good because he's got the power to do this. But I think all the studios, if they really want to be successful, they need to just include, be more diverse themselves in their commissioning you know, and who commissions. As you were talking, another thing occurred to me, which is that, that so much of horror is about navigating a situation. You're in a situation, it's an unfamiliar situation, because often it comes from a supernatural source or like a, just a, a crazy person escaped from some horrible place to visit violence and destruction on you. Very little in your life prepares you for what you're trying to do. And so often as we're watching it, you know, we might be talking to the screen saying, no, 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 don't, don't go in there. Don't put your hand on that garbage disposal, whatever it is. <laughs> don't do that. And, and I think being a person of color in a white society is very much like that anyway, right? You are constantly navigating situations which are not set up to accommodate you and which may exploit your own unfamiliarity with the situation. And you've got to make good choices because the stakes are higher for you, right? There's ways in which what happens in horror movies and the ways in which we are kind of sometimes silently and sometimes openly vocally coaching characters up on the screen has to do with how do you get through a situation that's not stacked up for you to win? I mean, I can, I mean I'm a British guy and um, what we do is we don't really talk about race in the way that you do in America. I wouldn't have ever had that question from a British guy. British people don't really want to talk about things. And so because of that, there's this kind of like horror of the what really i'm being racist we're not racist and it's the horror of gaslighting and i think like if you're going to do a horror about the situation in britain it would be sort of like your sort of village of the dam thing that underneath it all is this this the, the white people are crazy which they are <laughs> and so but in america i feel like, like horror is like a more violent thing that's you know it's really really difficult to to see to to really deal with, but 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 you are dealing with it. Whereas it doesn't, it's 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 not very British to talk about this kind of thing. Well, also, I mean, but it's, but it's just as bad. Yeah, in, in Get Out, you know, the horror is not coming from a bunch of redneck clansmen running around with nooses. The horror is coming from people who at least self-position and self-describe as welcoming white liberals, right? They turn out to be the scariest people in the world. Yeah, they voted for Obama, didn't they? That's what they say. <laughs> yeah, and I am I really empathize with Get Out, mainly because it's really quite funny, this. My partner is white, 
and her parents have very questionable views let's just say that <laughs> and um you kind of when you go around to like you know you anyone can it's kind of a familiar situation you go around to their house and you've got to like go with their, their go with the flow haven't you and then you you're wondering well, which point do you think actually i've got yeah they this is wrong <laughs> and so get out does really well at, at playing around with that at which point and i think it's it's kind of like heartbreaking that the uh, the girlfriend is in on it which hopefully hasn't happened in my which won't happen in my situation <laughs> yeah i mean i think a lot of horror anyway just horror there's a social component to a lot of it i've always thought this could just be me that in the movie rosemary's baby a lot of the horror is that ultimately mia farrow is going to have to acknowledge that all these kind of nice people, you know, this family she's married into and these helpful neighbors, they're all like devil worshippers and demons. And that it's going to be really awkward. This is the way it would be awkward to say to some of the characters in Get Out, wait a minute, you're not nice at all. I mean, there's that horrible moment where you have to break the comedy of a moment. And that's, I think, terrifying to all of us, probably. I mean, I find people who who um, go to public school. Public school in a, in a, in, a, in England yes. is like where well, you pay pay for it. Mm. Go to like Oxford or Cambridge. I mm. find them deeply terrifying. <laughs> you know, they, they this because they have that confidence that can't be shaken. And I think that's very true in horror films as well. That the people who are doing bad deeds sometimes, particularly, get they don't think they're doing bad deeds. So you can't. There's no way you can question it. I do think though we have to be a bit careful though when we're saying that like black people and people of color like horror because there's not all always the case um you know i don't think that my my parents liked it as much as me but then that's because they never explained the world to me and i think horror does a very good job explaining the world to people <laughs> yes indeed uh, david jesse darson thank you so much for talking to us freelance writer and journalist david jesse darson wrote about horror's dubious reckoning with racism for bbc culture thanks for being with us well, thanks very much i really look forward to hearing your american werewolf in london chat because <laughs> it's one of my favorite films all right well it's coming right up after this Coming toward the end of today's program, I want to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer, and Jonathan McPants, who curates with great care and enthusiasm our yearly show about horror, which every year I forget that we actually even do, but he remembers. So it has become our custom when we do these Halloween horror specials to celebrate the anniversary of one of the really kind of epic horror movies. These have included Halloween in 2018, Alien in 2019, The Shining in 2020, and now in 2021, An American Werewolf in London. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Yeah? A coyote. There aren't any coyotes in England. The Hound of the Baskervilles? Pecos Bill? Heathcliff. Heathcliff didn't howl. No, but he was on the moors. 
It's a full moon. Beware the moon and stick to the road. Oops. I should also say two things. One of them is that in 1981, when American Werewolf in London came out, I had the opportunity to interview its star, David Naughton, partly because he's from around here. He is from West Hartford, and I'm sitting sort of just over the West Hartford, Hartford line right now, and we're going to be talking in a few more minutes about Wolfen. Diane Venora, the star of Wolfen, is from Hartford. So it's a very Hartford-centric conversation. It seems like it's Wolf-centric, but it's really Hartford-centric. Rich Johnson writes about movies and hosts two movie podcasts, Film And and Mondo Movie House. So, Rich Johnson, maybe just so we can kind of get to know you and your relationship to this particular movie, which I think is a big part of your essay about this in Fangoria, you should explain sort of what age you were and, and under what circumstances you saw American Werewolf in London. Yeah, I was too young, way too young. <laughs> I was nine, and I was recuperating from a dog mauling. A second dog mauling seemed to be, um, yeah, just attracting Alsatians in particular to attack <laughs> me. So yeah, it was it was quite the experience. It was it was heightened somewhat. American World for London is a film that really lulls you in. And it gives you a really false sense of security. I mean, I was up past my bedtime anyway, but it's just one of those films that works on those kinds of levels. And I think as a nine-year-old, it's very easy to be suckered into it. And the familiarity of it, the fact that I, I was brought up on the fringes of the, of the city in Derbyshire in, in the UK. So the imagery was was really familiar. And the fact that, for me, it was all about monsters and things that scared me right on my doorstep. And it was also around that time as well for, for well, quite a huge part of the 70s and into the 80s, we had the Beast of Bobman Moor, which in America isn't quite so scary because you've got cougars and bears on your doorstep. But in the UK, when, you know, people start taking photographs of basically what is just a household cat in the distance in a blurry photo and then selling it like it's an escaped puma from the zoo really got into the public consciousness recently there's been a spate of savage attacks on farmers animals around bodmen moor rosemary rhodes who farms near bolventa was losing sheep about the same time as she and others had seen a huge black cat she bought a video camera and within two hours had captured this extraordinary footage we saw it coming down the field beside the gully and i thought no that that is a big one so there was a lot happening there was the yorkshire ripper as well so even though i may not have been exactly aware of those things subliminally i think and 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 hearing it maybe and filling my head with all sorts of terrifying things and i was e easily tricked and i was waited like i said way too young to see it Right. And you're certainly right about the U.S. I mean, I'm already mentally preparing for leaving this studio, walking down to the parking lot and having to chase the mountain lion away from my car so I can leave. I mean, they are just all over us all the time. And so, you know, your essay made me think about another thing, which I never really thought about quite this way, which is that, you know, it's you're sort of describing a kind of liminal moment as a movie watcher. You're mm. you're too young to be watching this movie, but you want to watch the movie anyway. The movie itself is John Landis, the director, later said, 
had that everybody told him either that it was too scary to be funny or too funny to be scary. But it's a little tricky that way. Like, how scary is this going to be and how funny is it going to be? Because you don't see the comedy. As a child, it's all about the monsters. As a teen, it's all about Jenny Agatha. And as an adult, it's all about the comedy and the craft of the film. Yeah. And I think that's why it works, because it works on so many levels and there's so many entry points to it, whether it scares the bejesus out of you as a child, you are going to come back to that film like any good horror. You're going to revisit it as an adult. Right. But, you know, the other the thing that your essay made me really think about, and I don't know how common this is, but I think it might be universal, is that when we have those liminal moments as children, quite frequently it's because we're watching the movie with our parents who either they themselves wanted to watch it and didn't feel like figuring out something to do with us to get us out of the way, or they've just made kind of maybe a bad decision about, you know, whether this is a movie that their child could handle. I mean, I remember going to see the movie in the heat of the night, which is not a horror movie, but I was probably about nine and there was no they, my parents had me in the back of the car to drive in movie I was like in the station wagon with some blankets to sleep on or something and then I watched this whole movie that was very inappropriate for me at the moment so it's sort of true right that you know sometimes these early movie experiences we have we have because our parents didn't bother to say you know what you probably shouldn't watch that movie yeah and I'm glad I had parents that were naive to all of that <laughs> um I come from a household that and not interested in the slightest about science fiction and fantasy and horror, and they're still not. But as a child, I think it goes back to Disney and, you know, him wanting to scare children and showing them the importance of fear, really, and and that it is a really important thing for children to understand what it's like to be afraid. And that's not in a really sadistic way. I just think it's, you know, it's it's something you have that's very human inside you. It's primordial. And I think it's it should that shouldn't be cut off because I think it could be quite damaging later on. I think you should be allowed to be scared. Right. You know, it's funny you mentioned the Jenny Agutter part of this. Jenny Agutter was a very beautiful young woman at the time. I'll be perfectly honest with you, David. I'm not in the habit of bringing home stray young American men. Well, I should hope not. I find you very attractive and a little bit sad. Go on. I've had seven lovers in my life, three of which were one-night stands. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but... Perhaps you'd like to watch telly whilst I take a shower. There's a very hot, although very wet, shower sex scene between her and Naughton. I asked David Naughton some kind of question about that, and he said, well, you know, you're just amazed you're getting paid to do something like that. And I said, I said aren't you married? Don't you think your wife is going to read that quote? What, what is she going to say? Well, we should transition also a little bit and talk about this particular moment. So it's 1981. You've also got The Howling. You've also got, as I said, Wolfen. I mean, what's going on there? I mean, the things that align with The Howling and American Wolf in London is – Rick Baker being prepped by Landis several, you know, decade prior into talking about how they were going to do those effects. Because American World for London was written in 1969 by a 19-year-old John Landis, which is phenomenal. It's astonishing to think of, a, of somebody so young writing such a good script as well. And he simply just dusted it down and then just prepped it, but nobody would finance it. So Rick Baker, in the meantime... I'm just going to I'm just going to jump in here and say for the untutored Rick Baker was a kind of legendary special effects makeup artist. Yeah. In other words, he was this guy who if you wanted somebody to really plausibly turn into a wolf in a way that people would be having nightmares about for several years afterwards. Rick, yeah, Rick Baker was the kind of guy that that you went to. Definitely. And and Wolfen is one of those films that 
it's quite maligned and i also think because they use the it isn't really a werewolf movie it's definitely a wolf movie it's not really a werewolf movie they use the werewolf as a macguffin cannibalism people eating people come on Fergie. those aren't human teeth marks is it an animal maybe well ain't human shape-shifting the body's just a physical expression of the soul. The soul can shift the body into any, any shape it wants. Kind of survival is shiftiest. It's more of a spiritual movie, really. And I think coming back to what you've touched on about, you know, yes, some of those polit- socio-political themes, it's more of a kind of eco-horror and taps into colonialism, which is, ab- which is a really fascinating concept. And I think out of all the three, I think Wolfen's actually got the deeper roots and I think the more interesting slant, it doesn't quite pull it off but uh, and it's quite heavy-handed, but some of the effects and some of the direction in there, it, real precursor to things like Predator and, you know, it kind of riffs a bit off Jaws, but it's a fascinating film, but it's, it's flawed. Whereas I think The Howling and obviously American Wolf in London are very much a kind of double feature. You know, as I think about all this, my thought is that uh, American Werewolf in London is, you know, very much, I think, a precursor to, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's the first one, but it kind of introduces a style that has a quality of postmodernism to it. There's a way in which it's constantly winking at itself. Griffin Dunn is all the way through as this you know, this kind of mutilated guy, the friend of the, the main character who's kind of, you know, in this sort of Mercutio role. I realize I don't look so hot, David. But I had to come. Aren't you supposed to be buried someplace in New York? Yeah. Your parents came to my funeral. I was surprised at how many people came. Well, why should you be surprised? You were a very well-liked person. Yeah, I was, wasn't I? Well, I liked you. I'm going completely crazy. But there's also a way in which Naughton is an interesting protagonist, right? I mean, here in America, mm. first of all, the other thing he wound up being known for <laughs> is the Dr. Pepper guy. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? And so there's a sense in which he, on the one hand, I think can project the qualities of kind of a blithely unaware sitting duck. But he's not. I mean, Wolfen, by contrast, has a kind of gravitas to it. I think there's sort of a sense. There, there's no winking, at least in my recollection. There's not a lot of winking. No, no there's, not, there's not really any winking. And I mean, the howling has got a real kind of exploitation grind, grindhouse vibe to it at the beginning of it. Um, and it kind of then starts to soften a little. Whereas, yeah, like you're saying, with, with American Wolf in London, the characters are so lovable. And Norton and Dunn in particular, uh, you know, they create two characters who you really do care about. And I think you care f- for them through the comedy, which I missed as a nine-year-old. I was so kind of transfixed and lulled in by the beautiful soundtrack and the music. And you were, you were there, there writing it with these characters. And they're young lads as well. And you kind of relate to them a lot more. So when you are then a teen, you relate to them a little bit more. Oh, you know, backpacking, discovering yourself, going to different countries, alienation, isolation, all of this stranger in a strange land. It, it's all fascinating stuff. And we've been there. I, you know, when I've been to America and been in the middle of Nevada, it's like, what? You know, <laughs> like you feel lost and 
and away from everything and probably the uh, and, and properly alone it's impossible to be lost in the uk because it it's such a small little place <laughs> but even though it's it's an american filmmaker making them making the british landscape look like it's something that will still swallow you whole and attack you all right we have to stop because we're out of time and also i can see out the window there's a bear chewing on the luggage rack of my car right now and i gotta <laughs> go get him uh rich johnson uh, writes about movies and hosts two movie podcasts phil man and mondo movie house thanks for talking to us about this no problem anytime and thanks for listening i hope we didn't scare you i doubt we did we'll be back tomorrow unless for some reason we we don't show up. Blue Moon.